Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm Cathy Weiss and this is Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. I acknowledge the cold truth of her death for perhaps the first time she is truly gone forever out of reach and i have become my own judge sheila ballantyne imaginary crimes 1982 welcome to radical philosophy i'm your host beth matthews and I'm speaking to Professor Sherry Tuttle-Ross about Raising Responsibility, Motherhood and Moral Luck. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Um, yes, um, I grew up on a farm in rural Wisconsin, uh, which is a, a state in the United States along the Mississippi River. And I was an exchange student actually in Perth, Australia, so I'm very fond of Australia. And I received all of my degrees from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, which is a research university, a land grad university in our state. Um, my area of specialization in philosophy is uh, the philosophy of art, and I wrote a dissertation on propaganda and art, and it broadly deals with the question, how does art function politically? And so I'm interested in both art and politics, both very broadly conceived. And this includes a deep and abiding interest in feminist aesthetics and also everyday aesthetics. So what was it that inspired you to study raising responsibility, motherhood and moral luck? So my former, so um, in my dissertation committee, there were three people. One of them was Noel Carroll, who was a philosopher of art. Another person was Claudia Card, who's a renowned feminist philosopher. And another person was Paula Gottlieb. Claudia is a world-renowned feminist philosopher. In fact, she was one of the first sort of openly lesbian philosophers to give a paper at the American Philosophical Association. And she was having a 65th birthday in which people could submit abstracts for a conference in her honor that dealt with aspects and ways to extend her work. And so that's how I was able to think about how it is that my own lived experience which is something that Claudia Card quite emphasized in her research, that what we need to do is we need to take philosophical methods and have women's own experience be subjects of of philosophical methods so that we can be part of the conversation. And so I basically used a quite sort of Claudia Card methodology as well as some of her key ideas in order to see what this experience is really like. When I was in graduate school, I I was pregnant with my daughter, and I was the only woman uh, in a department of about 30 students who who was pregnant, who actually had a child in graduate school. And I thought that not only was the experience very unusual, but also 
theorizing about that experience was really unusual, and I was really thankful for the conference to have the opportunity to think about that. Would you be able to give us your definition of moral luck? Yes. So I think moral luck arises out of the thought about responsibility and the criteria that in order to be responsible, circumstances must be under your control. But given that there are always going to be factors outside of your control, then there's a way in which that makes responsibility implausible. So I think of moral luck as being a necessary feature to account for responsibility. That is, moral luck is an obstacle with respect to any account of of responsibility. Could you tell us about Claudia Card's philosophical work? Yes, she, like me, grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, and the state of Wisconsin at that time had the Wisconsin idea, which is we were very proud to pay high taxes because our education system was thought to be second to none. Of course, there's some bravado in there, but it meant that even parents who, even children whose parents didn't maybe finish high school could go on to get a college degree and more. And Claudia and I had that in common. Um, My father doesn't have a high school education. Her parents didn't have a high school education. But nevertheless, we were able to go on and get our degrees. And she did her undergraduate at University of Wisconsin, and then she studied with John Rawls at Harvard University. And so she's very inspired by John Rawls, but also took that commitment to political liberalism to what it would mean to be a lesbian thinker, what does it mean to be you know, a woman in philosophy, what does it mean to be just a human being living with so much evil in the world? So I, there's both two facets of Claudia's work that I find really important. One is her methodology, that is, taking one's own experience as central, and two, a commitment to justice as fairness, a commitment to being a philosophy applicable to, to the real world. What is the notion of taking responsibility in connection to children? So I think what it does is, in the discourse, I think what it does is it changes the conversation a bit. For a long time in political liberalism, autonomy was thought to be the opposite of dependence. And, of course, with respect to whether or not we should value autonomy, it was presupposed that autonomy in and of itself was was valuable, but it struck me that dependence is likewise valuable. Again, if we take our own experience seriously, we can think about a different set of values as opposed to simply autonomy, but also integrity. That is, if we think about, you know, why should we value integrity, then we can look at responsibility under that lens. And also note that responsibility, like integrity, is developmental and incremental. And so whereas Claudia talks about the perspective of someone who has been oppressed putting their life together, I think another one of those fundamental challenges is when young people grow up, they are essentially putting their life together, and they're doing so in a dependent state. Given that parenting and um, that and childhood goes sort of in steps. There's ways in which it's developmental and incremental. Your role as a parent, your role as a mother changes 
right, from different time frames on, in child's life. So, I mean, another way of thinking about this is, you know, when your kids are first born, right, you're like a demigod. You are in control of their whole atmosphere. You are the tooth fairy. You are Santa Claus. And then they grow older and they have preferences. They have decisions that they would like to make. And you're responsible for setting some of the background conditions, right, but also trying to get them to reason about the consequences of those. You know, if you make this choice, these consequences are likely to happen. And you have to sort of set the background conditions such that the choices are likely to be okay. As they grow older, if you want to have raised someone with integrity, you're going to have to move into what I sometimes call consultant role, right? You're going to need to be a soundboard for bigger decisions, but you're going to be dealing with an equal, even though you are the one who has raised them. Certainly a lot of decisions once you have a child. When I was a child, I I wanted to play with cars and trucks, but my parents wouldn't allow me to do that. And then when I had a daughter, she wanted me to buy her a Barbie doll. And even though I thought this wasn't a very feminist thing to do, I, I bought her the Barbie doll because I thought that if I don't give her the toys that she wants... It was as bad as my parents not giving me the toys that I wanted. So I suppose you could say this was one grey area of having a child, isn't it? Yes, um, very much so. And we went through our own Barbie ordeal um, in our household. My daughter desperately, she got to preschool, she desperately wanted a Barbie. We explained, no, you know, those are, you know, we really don't want you to have a Barbie and so then we set up this sort of system where she earned stickers, and it took her nine months to sort of earn enough stickers so that she could then go and purchase uh, her, her Barbie doll. So in some ways, the way that we set it up, my, my child ended up giving birth to her Barbie in nine months. <laughs> um, but again, it is a gray zone because there's a sense in which you want to make sure that you're not making the same mistakes that your parents make. But we're all inevitably bound to make some mistakes because we aren't we aren't perfect as human beings. There's um, the gray zone is important because there are ways in which we our actions are structured by systematic injustices, and sometimes with those systematic injustices we have more power. And in using that power, we have to make sure that we do so in a way that fosters integrity that fosters the ability to live without sort of undue, undue evil. What are the two dimensions of responsibility? So according to Fingret, who is a, a huge theorist with respect to personal responsibility, there are the background conditions, and then there's the intention to take responsibility. And this is often thought to depend upon both forward-looking uh, responsibility and backwards-looking responsibility. In backwards-looking responsibility, that's when we assign praise or blame. In forwards-looking responsibility, it's when we're able to predict the consequences of our actions. It's when we choose based on the likely consequences of our actions. I suppose there are some things that young children really shouldn't have a choice about, such as smoking or drinking alcohol. Yes, that's that's most um, definitely true. And I think that that's where 
the notion that responsibility becomes developmental and incremental. We want to have our children to be able to make mistakes, but ideally the mistakes that they would make would not be so soul-depriving that they would no longer be able to have those sorts of those sorts of decisions again. So again, given the risks to one's health and life with respect to smoking or drinking alcohol, those are cases where children shouldn't have an option. In the United States, we have laws with respect to car seats. And, you know, when my children were younger, they had no choice but if we were riding in a car to make sure that they're they were in the car seat fully, fully locked and loaded in. And that's important because given that there are preconditions in which one can exercise choice, making sure that one doesn't have choices that forego future choices is, is quite important. Yeah, I think it's really important to, when you make a decision for your child, to keep their options open. And I remember with... And my daughter, when she was just before she turned three, she was diagnosed with a severe hearing loss. And I was asked whether what type of communication I'm going to choose for her. But I was told that if she didn't speak when she was younger, by the time she was seven, all her speech patterns would have been laid out and she wouldn't have been able to speak as well if she hadn't learnt before she was seven. So I opted for just oral communication and then when when she was seven I asked her if she wanted to sign or continue speaking and she said no I want to continue speaking and I thought well at least I've sort of kept her options open and she could have made whichever decision she wanted to at that stage. And I think that this in fact goes back to Fraga and his philosophy of language. There's There's The first um, element is that context determines sense. The context of your decision, right, determines what sort of options there are. And then sense determines reference. There's a way in which of those options, of those values, the one that you are going to choose, right, is going to be the one that would foster the ability for your child to have as much integrity as they can as, as an adult. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm speaking to Professor Sherry Tuttle-Ross about motherhood and moral luck. Now, could you tell us about the target question your daughter asked you? Yes, this comes from the article that I wrote for Hypatia uh, that was published in 2009. And so this was quite a long time ago because my daughter is now 19 and this happened when she was five years old. And Target is a department store here in the U.S. They sell clothes. I mean, they sell pretty much everything. They sell clothes. They sell groceries. They sell, uh, you know, you know do- toys. They sell electronic equipment. And they sell uh, diapers. And at that time, they were, like, the cheapest place to buy diapers. And her younger brother was still in diapers at that time. And so we had to go to the Target, had to you know, rush to get the diapers, we're checking out with her brother and with her. And there's a, to be clear, I'm white, my husband's black, my children are multiracial, but they look and other people identify them as black. And so, in fact, when, uh, when they were much younger, people didn't even think that they were my children. They thought that I was the babysitter. But we're in the checkout line, there's an, um, a black family in front of us. And my daughter turns to me 
and says, you know, as they do, because we had very open communication. We wanted our children to ask why. I thought that was one of the coolest things about having a kid as a philosopher is all of the why questions, and I wanted to encourage why questions. And so my daughter asked a why question. She asked, Mommy, why do blonde people have more power than black people? At that age, she didn't use the, the sort of race terms that we use in the United States. She didn't use white or black. She used blonde, which she thought all of um, white people were blonde, and brown, which she determined were all brown people. And when she says that question, five years old, quite loudly in the target, <laughs> there was a lot of stammering that went around uh, that, you know, when I was trying to answer that question, because it was a really serious question. I mean, she was, you know, she had gone to preschool for three years at that point. She sort of knew what was going around in the classroom. She thought about things in quite an interesting way, and I was stumped, right? Um, and I think that that instance really brought to the fore the kind of notion of moral luck. There's a sense in which I am advantaged um, in certain sorts of ways because I'm white. There are ways in which I am disadvantaged in certain sorts of ways because I'm a woman. And so there's ways in which my children's lives are going to be impacted because other people will see them as brown or black. And so, and it is the case that, for example, in the United States, if you have two identical resumes, one of them with a stereotypical African-American name, one of them with a stereotypical white name, the white name is far more likely to be called black than the one with the black name. So how is it that you figure out what to say to that sort of, of really profound question um, in a really awkward place? <laughs> it's, in, it's in the middle of the store. And so I responded by, hey, why don't we have this question in the car? Like, let's see if we can buy you some gum and <laughs> keep chewing, and then we'll talk about this in the car. And it really, it really made me, made me think. And, you know, what does power mean? You know, what does, what does it mean to grow up faced with injustice, and, but still believe that things like morality, things like personal integrity are quite important? And that's when the philosopher of art sort of kicked in. And I was like, well, part of what power means is that, you know, you have the power to create. At this point, she had gone to dance lessons, and she drew quite a lot. And we thought about the power to create and the power to, to think about how things could be otherwise and how, in many ways, that's central to a conception of integrity. It's, a concept, it's central to being quite familiar with what it is you value and then planning on acting on, on those values. Yeah, I felt that being a mother was the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. And I felt like no matter which decision I made, someone would comment that it wasn't the right one. And it's, it's, is that a fairly common practice for mothers? I think, I think it is. And I think this is where radical feminism that I became first acquainted with, with Claudia Card, is really instrumental here. Um, because one of the things about sort of radical feminism is a notion of separatism, right? There's a, there's a way in which 
there are values that you are going against because you believe that they are inherently unjust, but they are as common as the water you drink and the air you breathe. And so in order to deal with that, you need to be very cognizant that there are some people who will proffer their advice, (laughs) you know, unrequited, and you simply, gracefully as you can, build up a boundary whereby you take their advice and say, yeah, that's not for me. (laughs) And you don't have to say that directly to them. You don't have to instigate conflict. But by creating a space, by saying, okay, what they're saying is reflective of a value, is that in fact a value that's going to enhance my integrity or is it going to deplete my integrity? I think that's really, really helpful with respect to becoming sort of a radical mom, if you will, becoming a mom who is focused on raising children who grow up to be adults with with integrity. But you're absolutely right, this kind of notion that, you know, women and other men will make folks feel bad about themselves because as mothers, we're either perfect, like in the Marge Simpson sort of way, or we are leaving our children to be raised by wolves. And the kind of notion that life is complicated and being a mother is complicated and the institution of motherhood changes is, is all, all very complicated. Now, we touched before on the, on the grey zones. Could you explain a little bit more about the grey zones? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. The grey zone is a philosophical term that's coined by Primo Levi, and it was used to describe those in a concentration camp that have some authority to oppress those, even though they, those people who are oppressing the others, are, they are too suffering from oppression. So there's a sense in which a group that's oppressed sometimes have those who have situationally more power, and they use that power, right, to oppress others, and sometimes in doing so gain, gain certain sorts of advancements. Claudia Card coined the term gray area for less desperate cases, where it shares the same sort of moral features, right, but... She wanted to make sure that the gray zone itself, she didn't want to make an analogy, an inapt analogy between the Holocaust and sort of U.S. motherhood today or what it's like to be sort of a 20th century woman, even though there are sort of uh, oppression in both cases, the degree is such that it would be rendered a different kind. And so while I'm white, I'm certain to go through life with certain advantages that my black husband and black children don't have. And so if I were to use those advantages to further oppress my husband and children, right, that would be a way in which you would be functioning sort of in the gray zone. And one has to be very mindful because oftentimes there's sort of no, no good option. No, that's very interesting. Uh, do you have any future study plans within this field? I also wrote an article of mindful mother, mothering uh, that was published in a book that Sheila Lintott had put out, basically how it is that mindfulness practices can enhance the experience of beauty in, in mothering and draw more compassion to the sort of impossible task that is seemingly set before us. But now that I'm a full professor and finally a full professor, 
I'm playing with the idea of writing philosophical fiction to address the quandaries that are found in, in parent, modern parenthood and child raising, and often sort of the quandaries that exist when you have siblings who have chosen to raise their children with different you know, parenting philosophies, and how do you negotiate those parenting philosophies when one gathers sort of as a greater, as a greater family? I think that exploring that in fiction is probably a better genre than sort of strict sort of philosophical prose. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you so much for having me. And I've been speaking to Professor Sherry Tuttle-Ross about Raising Responsibility, Motherhood and Moral Luck. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. I'm Christine Overall. I'm a Professor Emerita of Philosophy and University Research Chair at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. You've been listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 8.55 on your AM dial. Hope you've enjoyed the program. I've certainly enjoyed your company. 